This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Yes, once again, this is Rabbi Michael Katz, not Rabbi Rishishla, coming to you live here on a Wednesday afternoon. It has just gone 10 past 2, and uh, Wednesday afternoon means that at the slot it is Judaism 101.9. Great to have you with us. Hope you're enjoying your day, enjoying your week, and um, <clears throat> looking forward to, of course, the coming Shabbos. Looking forward, I'm sure everybody is, to Hanukkah coming up towards the end of the month and <clears throat> well, the end of the Jewish month, of course. And, of course, all the stuff in between with um, camp and holidays and uh, end of year exams and finals and all those wonderful things um, and bringing this secular year to a close in uh, the most amazing way, very, very swiftly, very quick. I'm sure that everybody agrees that it's passed by all too quickly. Um, what I thought of discussing with you today is, you know, we very often take a look at things that keep on recurring and coming up in the Torah, in the Parsha, in the Parsha of the week, um, in, in the system that Judaism looks at for spiritual and for physical direction. And I don't think we often pay that much heed to the amazing amount of absolute um, tradition as well as law, as well as system, that um, a lot of these Parsha stories and a lot of these events in the Parshiot that we're dealing with actually teach us and how intrinsic and essential they are to Jewish life. And I thought that therefore today we could take a look with a little bit of a background at the Parsha or the Parshiot, in fact, that we're reading, but particularly the one that we read this week, and think about the concepts and the directives and the rules and the traditions of Jewish marriage. Think about marriage. Marriage, and of course, um, not just to direct this conversation, um, this discussion, <coughs> and this interaction with just those who are about to get married. Um, and um, this is not by any means a marriage briefing, but rather to think about some of the Background and some of the traditions and some of the places and spaces, perhaps, where some of our wonderful traditions, as well as one of our wonderful laws about marriage, actually came from. Let's begin by putting it into context. We read in this week's parsha all about the marriage of Yitzchak, correction, of Yaakov and his wives. We talk about the two wives that he married. We're thinking about Yaakov, who went to Choron. He goes to that place <clears throat> somewhere there in the area of the Euphrates, the Iran-Iraq kind of neighborhood. And the reason is that his father doesn't want him to uh, marry uh, within the Canaanite women, just like his grandfather before him. Plus, he has um, got to make a beat a hasty retreat to get out of there and out of the way of a very belligerent brother called Esau, called Esau. And interim, he meets up with the, uh, the woman of his life, the one that he really falls in love with and wants to marry, and that is Rachel, Rachel. He meets up with her. He knows that she is the one for him. Um, of course, she's all connected in all the right places with um, his family, and um, there is no two ways about it, but this is a shidduch. This is a marriage that's made in heaven. Of course, we know that through the mystique and uh, mysterious ways of the story, and of course, a little bit of 
um, some skull drudgery, whatever it's called, that is carried out by our good friend Lavan, by the proverbial first mentioned and very, very instrumental and interfering father-in-law. We have the interference in that layer is actually put forward first and surreptitiously she is the one who is brought to marry our forefather Yaakov Jacob he is clearly not that happy with um, what was done to him but he accepts remains married to her and later on actually marries Rachel as well so he marries the two sisters Rachel and Leah we know that it's through them and of course um, yes, a part of the story that's difficult for us all, I guess, to understand is they also had handmaids, and those handmaids also became, let's call them surrogate wives or wives per se, and it is through the four of them, uh, Rochel and her handmaid, uh, Leah and hers, that the entire spectrum of the Jewish people is actually fathered, um, all the tribes of Israel, all the children of Jacob, all the Bnei Yisrael actually come from this um, multiple union or this union of Jacob with um, his wives. And, of course, that is the focus of this week's parasha. And it actually takes us from the beginning, from the time that Jacob leaves Israel, goes to uh, Haran, until the time that he is um, ready for return um, after having been there for many, many years, having worked hard in order to be able to earn and deserve um, the uh, marriage of his favorite Rachel, but of course of all his wives, um, and of course all the shenanigans and all the dealings that go on between him and Lovon, um, the uh, failed barter system, the failed um, kind of arrangement and agreement that they have on what he can and he can't do and he can't take and so on. And we see the most incredible background to this whole story. But the marriage and the whole concept of the marriage from beginning to end is something that is a central focus here because it's played out in so many different ways. And we have so many things that are actually brought to our attention throughout this um, marriage or number of marriages that take place in the parsha. First and foremost, number one is, I guess, the concept of um, the courtship, the fact that a couple meet. And um, interestingly enough, the Torah always seems to have these meeting places at the well. Now, I guess many couples would think about very romantically possibly their first date and the first place that they went out, that they were going to meet each other. It's possibly and probably often had some kind of an impact on uh, the whole dating procedure as well as the marriage thereafter. And everybody looks back, I guess, with a certain amount of fondness and sometimes, yes, stars in the eyes about um, the very first time that we met and the first place that we met and the first place uh, that he took you to and so on. All of these things um, come up later on in the marriage. Well, when we think about um, Jacob and uh, Rachel, Yaakov and Rachel Emenu, They met just like Eliezer had met Rivka before, just like later on Moshe Rabbeinu Moses meets up with his wife. They met at a well. Now, if you think about the well, the well kind of been the fanciest place in town, but I guess 
there may have been some kind of social interaction, social activity that took place there, kind of the meeting place. People went out there. They were grazing their uh, sheep and cattle and uh, camels and so on. And um, the drinking trough, the water, um, was possibly a place where there was a little bit of social interaction. Well, it gives us some kind of an insight into life in those days. They didn't go out to the lo- local club. They didn't go out to the local pub. They weren't taken out to the movies. They met at the well. Is there not something very important and very significant about the concept of meeting at the well and what the wells represent? Well, of course there is. Uh, First of all, I think that we're correct in saying that the idea of the wells is, of course, the idea of water. And many of us living in the northern suburbs know what it means for the last couple of days to be without water. Um, I don't know if you're one of those in uh, that kind of a, well, I guess in that boat would be the wrong expression to use when we're talking about a lack of water. Um, But in that position whereby you've been without water for a few days, we certainly have, and it's not that pleasant. But the um, idea of water is that water is the mainstay of life. One cannot live without water. Well, the Jewish people, and I guess all people, would not continue and would not be able to carry through all the messages from Mount Sinai and beyond um, through to future generations were it not for marriages. This is a place where the flow of wisdom, the flow of understanding, the flow of spirituality, the flow of Judaism um, has to pass through there. We also have the concept of a well-being that um, there is something very um, simplistic and deep, of course, about the concept of a well. And I don't mean that in any um, uh, punny kind of a way. But the idea of the depth is that on the outside, on the externals, um, there is very often rough rock. There is very often sand and muck that one needs to have to remove. But we understand that there is water beneath. The water in the well is hidden. The idea of what to look for in a marriage partner is possibly and probably really very well depicted by the concept of a well. And so our forefathers seem to meet their beloveds at the well. And that is where the Shidduchim, that is where these marriages all begin. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. What a wonderful nigun there to get us into the mood Shabbos sticker kind of a nigun, beautiful to get us into the mood of what we're talking about here, um, which is marriage. We're thinking about marriage in terms of the parshiot, the parshas, and of course the first image, um, which we discussed before the break, of the meeting at the well. Well, then things progress, and then we think about the whole concept of marriage per se. When we think about, we talk about the marriages that take place in Torah. Well, we've had an image from Yitzchok and from uh, Rivka already that the chosan and kala, that the bride and the groom should spend some time in some serious introspection before they uh, go to the chuppah, before they get married. You know, we often think about, we often tell a bride and groom to spend some time learning Torah. In fact, it's a good and wonderful tradition that many have that from the time of the engagement until the time of the marriage that um, the chosen would go off to yeshiva, that he would spend some time really, really involved in spiritual pursuits and in uh, getting his... Um, spiritual life, his life per se, and his neshama kind of in order for this momentous and incredible um, and beautiful occasion of when he and his bride are going to be setting up a Jewish home together and what could be a greater mitzvah than that. And, of course, we learn that from 
Yitzchak Avinu from Isaac in the parsha that we read last week and the week before that, when we think about the concepts and the ideas of how Yitzchak spent the days before he actually met up with Rivka. Because where was he? You know, if you take a look at the Torah carefully, it seems that Yitzchak, I know that Isaac was, let's call it, missing in action from the time of the Akedat Yitzchak until the time that he appears to meet his dearly beloved, to meet Rivka, when she is brought back into Eretz Yisrael to Israel with Eliezer, or by Eliezer, that um, he's missing He's not around. He's not mentioned. Even at his mother's funeral, we don't hear about Yitzchak. And many pose the question as to what happened to him. And in fact, there are many who point out that if you take a calculation of the ages of the people who were living simultaneously there, somehow there is three years missing from the life of Yitzchak, Avin of Isaac. And they conclude, um, or the question is asked, where was Yitzchak? Where was Isaac during that period of time? And the conclusion is, that he was in Gan Eden, that he was actually taken up to heaven where he spent three years in a spiritual pursuit of learning all about what goes on in Gan Eden, what it is about and what it is like and what God really wants from us and how to have your soul really directed in the most spiritual and beautiful, righteous fashion, that this is what Yitzchak Avinu, this is what Isaac actually had done in preparation for his marriage. Well, similarly, we say to a chassan, to a groom before his marriage, spend some time like Yitzhak Avinu did in these spiritual pursuits. But let's move on and let's actually get to the chuppah. Let's talk about what happens on the day of a Jewish wedding and what are the things that perhaps a couple need to prepare in advance and then perhaps from time to time just to reflect back and think about where we actually got them all from. Well, first of all, um, for a Jewish marriage to take place, of course, we're not necessarily going to go into all the details, but for a Jewish marriage to take place, there needs to be a proof of Jewishness. A bride and groom today need to be able to prove that they are Jewish. Now, this sounds awesome and perhaps difficult. Don't get too nervous and scared about it, but it can quite easily be done because the strange thing is, that it is Jewish marriages that have actually been the thread that runs through Jewish life that has kept us Jewish. If you think about it, and anybody who's been through the process will know that the first thing that is asked of a bride and groom who's stepping forward and wanting to get married is bring along your parents' ketubah, your parents' marriage document. Now, your parents' marriage document is a document that will attest to the fact that your parents, your mother and your father, were married halachically, that they were married correctly, that their names are filled in on that ketubah, and that it was done by a rabbi and within a community that uh, knew exactly what they were doing and would have checked out before them as to the Jewishness of that bride and groom when they appeared there. And so the thread of the ketubot of marriage is the very thread that we use to prove Jewishness. Now, what does it actually prove? Well, when you bring along your ketubah, it will verify, I guess, that your mother and your father are halachically Jewish at the time that they got married. Now, there's still no link yet with you, the bride or the groom, who are bringing this documentary proof. And, of course, then what is required from there is that we provide some kind of a link that will show 
that the bride or the groom, the child, is actually the child of that particular marriage, of that particular mother and father, but more pertinently, of course, the mother, but the mother and father within that particular marriage. So you're bringing along the ketubah, proves that your mother and father were Jewish. You need to bring along a link that is going to show that you are actually the child of that relationship. And that's going to involve a full birth certificate, a full birth certificate which shows that you are the natural-born child, documented proof of you being the natural-born child of those particular parents. If you're not the natural-born child, some kind of adoption papers, there may be a requirement for conversion papers if that actually took place along the way. Um, These are all the requirements that are needed in uh, the case of a couple proving or trying to prove that they are eligible to marry each other. Of course, the other things that the rabbi and the rabbis need to take a look at is um, that there may be certain people who are not permitted by Jewish law to actually marry each other. Of course, we know that you're not allowed to marry very close relatives, uh, brothers, sisters, um, etc. But we also know that Kohanim, uh, people who come from the lineage of the priestly families are not allowed to marry anyone who has been divorced, a woman who has been divorced, or a woman who is converted to Judaism. These are particular rules that are made for Kohanim. So we need to check out that those things are um, uh, are, are okay as well before the marriage is permitted. And, of course, this is all done locally through our local Bethdin, the rabbis, um, we'll send the young couple to the Beth Den where they go for an interview, they fill in the forms, and um, all of these things then are carefully checked out to ensure that the marriage can um, uh, take place under halachic auspices in a Jewish, proper Jewish marriage. So those are the um, some of the preparatory things, of course. Um, Couples are directed to spend some time learning. Now, they study primarily the laws that pertain to marriage, rules and regulations about um, um, the marriage per se, as well as a lot to do with um, the mikveh laws and so on, which um, then, again, I think is a throwback to the idea of Yitzchok spending some time in Gan Eden. In, uh, in, uh, in learning and studying, and it's not just necessarily or only about studying the rules and regulations that pertain directly to marriage, but things about life per se, because when we're talking about the setting up of a Jewish home um, of a marriage, we're talking about the perpetuation of the Jewish people, as we've already mentioned before. We come to the chuppah. At the time of the chuppah, there are several things that take place. And, of course, one of the first things that seems to be a throwback to this week's parsha, and it's interesting that perhaps we use that euphemism of a throwback or that idea of a throwback, is that we're talking about or we do talk about the first thing that takes place at the chuppah per se or before the chuppah is the bedecking. The bedecking or the placing of the veil over the bride, many um, say, well, look what happened. Um, Yitzchok. Uh, sorry, Yaakov Avinu, I keep on mixing up and I apologize. Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, comes to his wedding and at the wedding he marries, wants to marry uh, Rochel, but he instead is duped. He marries Leah. Now, many people say, okay, so what happens? <clears throat> the groom goes outside and he checks to see that this is the right girl. And he kind of says, I want to see that the woman who's dressed up there in the white dress who's got the uh, train and the, the tiara and whatever else she has uh, adorned herself with to look beautiful as a bride, she sitting there 
is actually the one that I want to marry. And we then say to him, you know, we don't want anybody else to dupe you. So nobody is going to put the veil over her face. You yourself put the veil over her face. And then you'll know that she's the one that you have designated to marry. And uh, it will never happen again that um, a lovan will come along and dupe you. You know, one would think, I guess, that uh, that seems to be a little counterintuitive. Surely, if the groom wants to make sure that it's the right woman, um, it should be under the chuppah at the moment of marriage that he actually checks that because there's some time in between. If anybody wanted to do anything sinister or untoward <coughs> in swapping brides and so on, it could still happen. The bride is in one room, the groom is brought into the chuppah, and then next thing a woman walks in and she's veiled. Well, she could look exactly like the one uh, that he just veiled. He doesn't check to see that she's the right one. Um, and in good old tradition, in fact, the veils are almost completely, completely um, untransparent. Um, he certainly can't see who she is. And if she's uh, got a sister and they maybe even look alike, like uh, Rochel and Leia possibly and probably had some kind of similarities, um, etc., um, what kind of an action is this all? Well, perhaps there is a much deeper reason as to why we actually do the veiling. And um, that is Perhaps we need to reflect on the concept of a veil that is mentioned elsewhere in Torah. When Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses comes down the mountain, the Torah rec- records that he, his face um, was shining. There was such a glow on his face, such a spiritual radiance, that he had to cover his face with a veil. He placed a veil over his face in order to um, cover over this huge radiance, which otherwise may have cost the lives of people uh, from a spiritual point of view, who were just uh, sucked into this um, absolute bright and incredible, powerful um, light that was radiating from his face. Of course, this is where Michelangelo got the idea of making I think it was Michelangelo who made um, uh, Moses with horns. Um, of course, that's where they got this idea of horns because it says karan or panav, that his face radiated, and the word for radiance and a horn is similar, of course, in Hebrew. Um, but um, perhaps this is a better explanation. That we're talking about a bride who has been de- designated to be married is so radiant, so powerfully, spiritually beautiful, never mind the physical um, side of things and therefore the groom is actually saying I am, am going to be the one who is designated to marry you and I'm covering it over that A you are reserved for me B there is the concept of tzniut of uh, modesty that you don't have everybody gazing and gawking and looking um, in any fashion whatsoever at the beauty of the bride it's reserved for me so there's that idea of reserve but there's also the idea of covering it over um, of uh, saying you know what we realize just how powerful and spiritual this all is we're going to prevent anything um, God forbid of a negative nature from happening um, along the way this is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and welcome back. We're talking about marriages with the backdrop of the parishes that we're reading, the marriages of our forefathers, and particularly this week, Jacob Yaakov Avinu, who marries the two sisters, Leah and then Rochel. One of the interesting things that comes up in, uh, in the parsha mentioned in between here is the concept of Sheva brachas, seven weeks. Have you ever thought about that? Seven weeks, seven. 
days rather, Shava Brachas, um, the seven blessings that are uh, made under the chuppah and then the idea of the seven blessings that are done for seven days following the chuppah or including the day of the chuppah depending on how you read it and how you look at it is actually something that um, has its foundation in the parsha this week because we talk about the idea that Lovan, Lov, uh, the father-in-law insisted that um, a week had to be designated to the chuppah um, or to the wedding, and only after that was uh, Yaakov, was Jacob free to marry another woman. Well, if we think about um, um, our idea of Sheba Brachas, it's not in order, God forbid, to enable us to marry somebody else after that week, but just the idea, the notion of the one week being the time that needs to be allotted. It's almost like, I think, Lahavdil, if we think about the idea of people taking a leave for a wedding from um, uh, from work, the idea is a wedding is not just a one-day event. There needs to be a whole week during which uh, the husband and wife um, are spending every moment, I guess, together, and uh, during which they... Um, kind of get into this um, thing called marriage um, of course there is a lot that has to be done before and of course there's a tremendous amount that has to be done afterwards but the simcha itself is for the duration of that week long celebration of Shava Brachas we also have the idea um, which um, many many people um, don't quite uh, get I guess is um, that there are shushbinin that there are people who bring the bride and groom uh, to the chuppah a bride and a groom are regarded on the day of their marriage as being like a king and a queen king and a queen don't go anywhere without an entourage um, and the entourage needs to comprise of people who a are happy for them, and B, who can and do fill a spiritual space. There is a lot that is written about and a lot that is said and a lot of um, uh, legal um, requirements that the people who are the Shushbinin should be of, uh, of course, they themselves need to be Jewish. And one of the ideas that I have come across, which I find particularly interesting and fascinating, is uh, the concept, of course, of pole holders. And many often, very often, people ask the question as to why it is that pole holders actually have to be Jewish. What about the bridesmaids and so on? Well, we, we do understand that they all enter into a space under the chuppah, which in and of itself is very similar to the idea of a little baby. A little temple that the bride and the groom are creating and are making there. And we want to fill it with all the correct and the right spiritual energies. That means that we have to have under that chuppah, of course, people who only want the best for the bride and the groom. Well, obviously the parents do. And obviously your brothers and sisters do, hopefully. But we also want to fill it with the space that is spiritually correct and right, and therefore just like in the Beit HaMikdash, in a temple, in a shul, um, only uh, Jewish guys count for the minion um, and um, can, can be part of that minion. So too under the chuppah, um, since the bride and groom are accompanied under the chuppah by all of these spiritual uh, influences and forces, um, they need to be kosher, they need to be uh, correct, they need to be respectful of what is going on and so on. And therefore, 
if we think about um, the number of people who the participants in the chuppah, if you were to take the chos and the groom and count them as one, and we to take two witnesses that you need under the chuppah, so that makes three, you're going to have perhaps the rabbi who is um, officiating is doing the ceremony that will make it four. You have the brother, the, sorry, the brother, you have the father of the bride and the father of the groom, which may, gives us six people. We are short of four men to make up the minion. Now, I'm pretty convinced that it wasn't just to hold up the poles or to keep the um, structure from falling down that you had to have people that we named pole holders. But how about the idea that they perhaps are much more to be the supplements to make up the minion, that we could have a minion of men um, standing under the chuppah, that this chuppah takes place in um, the same kind of a uh, of a of an environment as uh, the holiest parts of our prayer services do, um, kedusha and so on. The holiness that is brought into that environment is only done in the presence of ten uh, men. This then would um, perhaps answer one of the questions as to why it is that we need those people under the chuppah um, to all be Jewish. And of course, we said they're standing in this holy space. There needs to be that Jewish environment. There needs to be that spirituality that surrounds and pervades everything else. I'll be back with you right after this short break. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, welcome back. Um, summing up now, talking about the rules and regulations of marriage that we have as um, learned from the backdrop of the Parsha that we read this week with the marriage of Jacob to uh, Leah and to Rachel. And there's an obvious question that is posed, and that is um, how was it that um, Yaakov, Avinu, that Jacob was able to marry um, two sisters, you know, uh, this is something that is a definite no-no from a Jewish point of view. Well, the answer, quite simply, is the fact that this preceded the rules of the Torah that were given to us at Mount Sinai, um, in which and whereby we had a lot of these um, um absolute definites um, spelled out to us and for a whole system to be laid um, for us going forward as to who and uh, when and how we can uh, carry out our own marriages and our own relationships. Of course, today, um, a man is not allowed to marry two sisters. Of course, a man, according to Jewish uh, tradition today, is not allowed to marry more than one wife, except um, for some who uh, still believe that it's uh, really possible, but according to certain xeris, certain decrees that were made by our later sages, um, these are things that we do not simultaneously marry uh, more than one person, more than one woman. If we think about um, the um, idea, in fact, that many, many people have as a kind of a, a, a bit of a mockery in a way, a bit of a fun-making of what actually happened with Yaakov Avinu, with Jacob. Well, he had to work very hard to deserve his wife. I think that maybe that is one that we should uh, perhaps also have as part of our tradition. Um, a, a good wife is something that from a Jewish point of view, a spiritual point of view, is something that you earn. It is not something that necessarily you always deserve, but it is actually something that you earn. It needs to be worked for. 
and a marriage needs to be worked on. And certainly Jacob Yaakov teaches us the concept, I think, of not only working hard to support your family, which he does, but working hard to merit them, working hard to deserve them. It is not just about putting in the long hours at the office, but it's about putting in the long hours at home. It's about putting in the effort and the energy in order to educate them all. But perhaps here we come to the real bottom line of today, and that is that Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, um, raises up a completely wonderful spiritual Jewish family. If we think about the messages and the lessons that he had to learn from, well, his father um, uh, Yitzchok before him had um, a success rate, yes, because he uh, raised Yaakov Avinu, but he also raised Esau, Esau, who wasn't exactly um, the best kid on the block or the uh, finest gentleman or the most wonderful Jew. And if we think about his grandfather, Avram Avinu, Abraham, um, he too had uh, the failure of his one son, of Yishmael, of Ishmael, but um, the great success, of course, with Yitzchak. When it comes to Yaakov Avinu Jacob, and perhaps this is why we call ourselves Bnei Yisrael, or sometimes referred to as Bnei Yaakov or Beit Yaakov, when we think about um, those ideas that we are from the tribes that Yaakov Avinu, that Jacob actually manufactured, that he installed within his children the values of Judaism, of righteousness, and so on, he has a complete full deck of all his children being righteous, of every one of them doing the right thing. And Yaakov Avinu teaches us, perhaps fundamentally, the real, real bottom line concept of a Jewish marriage, which is to raise up a Jewish family, to have a Jewish home, to be able to instruct and to have the wherewithal and the ability and the um, uh, knowing that this is something that is an absolute responsibility to teach your children, to bring them up well, to teach them how to be mentioned, to teach them how to be good human beings and how to be good Jews. And this is something that Yaakov Avinu manages to perfect, no matter what goes wrong. He doesn't blame and say, well, it was your fault and you tricked me and you did this and you did that, or blame it on the environment. He brought them up, raised them um, in a very, very hostile and difficult environment. He didn't blame the environment. He didn't blame the school. He didn't blame the community. He didn't blame anybody else. He took full responsibility. And look at the success that he made um, through his marriage and marriages and through the uh, raising up of his family, the ultimate goal of those marriages in the most incredible and beautiful lesson that we all need to learn on a regular basis. So I want to wish you a great Shabbat up ahead, a great rest of the week. Hope um, to see you again or be with you again uh, next week, same time, same place on Judaism 101.9.